welcome Dr. Minnelli to this third of our series of interviews about the Space Systems Program here at Naval Postgraduate School. You've got quite a story of your own that brought you here to NPS. Could you share that with us, please? Absolutely. Well, thank you, ma'am, and thank you for featuring our lab uh, and letting us talk a little bit about the research that we do here. We're very excited uh, about the work that we have here. So a uh, little bit about myself. I was actually born and raised here in Monterey. Uh, my, my mother taught Russian at the Defense Language Institute just up the street from NPS. Uh, and I actually, as I was learning uh, algebra and calculus in high school, a lot of my uh, tutors were NPS students at the time. Uh, so I had a little bit of a connection to NPS growing up. Uh, in the, uh, going to college, I went to Santa Clara University in the San Francisco Bay Area, not too far from here. Majored in mechanical engineering discovered I loved robotics, and as I found that I liked robotics, I also found that I wanted to work on things that flew. But I actually started working on underwater robotics. I found flight underwater to be similar as anywhere else, just the medium was denser than air. As we were exploring the, the bottom of the ocean, uh, NASA had landed two rovers on Mars, so Spirit and Opportunity, and that really got my attention, and I decided to uh, refocus to space. And so. Uh, through graduate school there at Santa Clara, I started working with NASA Ames Research Center, where we actually worked on the very first NASA CubeSats. And at the time, this was a very new and disruptive technology. Not many people within NASA uh, even knew about it, let alone um, knew of its potential. So we had a few very successful early demonstrations where we were flying uh, biological experiments. So rather than have the, uh, the crew members of the shuttle and of the space station performing some of the experiments, we actually built self-contained laboratories in these small satellites and launched them into the microgravity environment. And that freed up the crew then to do other experiments where human interaction was uh, a necessity. So that was all uh, great work. Uh, the bug definitely bit me. And as I started looking for PhD programs, uh, NPS got on my radar, but I wasn't in the military. And so one opportunity for studying here at NPS was to actually come on as a faculty member I already had my master's, and so to come here and to teach and to advise uh, and to mentor, but to also then be a student. And so uh, once I came on uh, in late 2011, I basically started my PhD uh, process right away. The, the, whole, the PhD itself took a little over six years. I've now been here almost nine, so I've certainly stuck around after my, after my schooling part was done, primarily because the research has been so interesting, and it's, uh, and it's really grown from the, the very small project that we started on now to, uh, to many different sponsors, many different stakeholders. The students are fantastic. They will keep me coming back, honestly. And so uh, we're just continuing to grow and uh, we're very excited about it. So that, that program is terrific. How did you get access to that program, to the PhD program here at NPS? So it's, uh, uh, it's a program that's made available to employees of the school here. Uh, and so if you, uh, if you work here on campus, you also uh, have an ability to pursue a degree in your spare time, provided that your schooling does not interfere with your work. And so first and foremost, my responsibilities were to the lab, to the research, and to the students that were coming through here. But I was also able to then take the coursework, uh, take the qualification exams, and then also participate in the research. So as we heard from Dr. Newman in the first interview, and then Dr. Land in the second interview, and now you, there's a continuity in the flow about things like small satellites, whereas Dr. Land was also very much focused on the materials and the structures of satellites. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, Dr. Newman comes with this vast amount of experience as to how satellites would behave in space. 
What is your focus area for small satellites? Particularly, uh, so I have a mechanical engineering background and a lot of my experience uh, back when I was at NASA had to do with uh, mechanical engineering. But having uh, experience in robotics, it turns out that's a very interdisciplinary field. So you have to know how to write software, you have to know how to build circuits. And in the end, space uh, is, you can never be a one trick pony in space. Uh, and so uh, being able to contribute all of those different um, uh, disciplines to building spacecraft actually is the most interesting part of it. My specialty here at NPS is primarily in communications and in mission operations. And so once we launch the satellites, we have to be able to get the, the information, the data off of the satellites, pass them to the stakeholders. We also have to be able to fly the spacecraft itself. And that in and of its own is a very challenging endeavor. So it is interesting because there's acquisition in space, there's programs, there's the physics and the cyber and the computer science, mm. much like having ships at sea or submarines under the water. Mm. And that's one of the unique things about NPS is that the naval maritime world is rather a multi-dimensional world of, of sea, land, air. And so what is it about, about uh, space systems that you have learned with regard to naval things, to things maritime and naval? Well, what's interesting is uh, our ships in the Navy operate far from land. And so to communicate with these ships, we have to leverage airborne and space-based assets. Without space, our Navy could never do the things that it does. We, we navigate the, the, the oceans with space-based assets. We have meteorological satellites that help us plan uh, the, the routes that our ships take and keep our sailors safe. Uh, and uh, there's also uh, uh, from intelligence gathering and, and so and they help us, uh, space-based assets that ultimately help the Navy uh, do its mission. As we learned from Dr. Newman, uh, small satellites uh, are as powerful as some of the large ones and that mm -hmm. the whole world of miniaturization and he used his iPhone saying that this is really a powerful computer that actually is more than anything that had happened in Gemini or Apollo and in the early space programs. What do you as a, one of our younger professors and scholars and experts see as a future of space in five, 10, 15 years? Well, it's a very interesting question and being involved in the research and development phase of small satellites, in a sense, we have to be able to try to predict the future because ultimately we're building it now. All the designs that we are uh, demonstrating in the field that we expose our students to on a daily basis 10, 15 years from now actually become reality. So I'll bring up the point, for example, my, with my past experience at NASA Ames, at the time, we had no idea that those satellites would work. We were launching one-off satellites. Even just attaching them to the rocket was a big deal because we had to convince people that they wouldn't shake apart, they wouldn't adversely affect the many hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars that are stacked on top of the rocket, the primary mm -hmm. payload. So you look at it 15 years later, not only has NASA uh, done many wonderful things with small satellites, but every branch of the military now has its own small satellite program. Uh, and we're actually involved with most of those programs in some way, shape, or form. So it's a very unique position for us to be sitting here at NPS and to be able to reach out to those different programs and to collaborate with them. So along that line, what are we looking at here? So this is a... Um, this is a small satellite uh, which uh, we are no longer going to fly. So this has become for us a, uh, a showpiece in a sense, but it's actually a fully functional satellite. It has its solar panels opened up, and, and so these actually all unfurl in space. Uh, this has a full 
communication system and a flight processor and attitude control system in it. And if you notice actually uh, out here on, this, uh, on the side, there's an open space, mm -hmm. there's a hole. And that open space is where you can fit in an experiment or a payload. Building satellites is actually quite challenging, I'm sure as you can imagine. Once folks have figured out how to do this, we are actually not interested in building these. The technology has already been developed. And the more we can pack into this, the better. We want to focus on the uh, experiment itself. And so uh, a common model early on, we would have to, all these different groups throughout the DOD would have to go build their own satellites, launch them, and then fly them and operate them themselves. 15 years later, we've now built communities, and there's companies, there's commercial uh, efforts to support this as well, where the satellites get built, the communication systems are built, we, the researchers, can focus on the experiments. And so and this is primarily what we try to expose the students to, is the development of the experiment, the integration into the space vehicle, and then ultimately, once it flies, the operation of that experiment. Well, that's a perfect setup, because you have a student here who you would, who you would like to be able to, uh, to, uh, to bring into this interview in her work in the, sa in the satellite and the space science program. And if I may uh, uh, introduce uh, Lieutenant Anastasia Novosovla-Vlat, uh, thank you for joining me. I'm a prior enlisted uh, linguist, actually, and I commissioned uh, about seven years ago into cryptologic warfare. Um, it's been an interesting ride. Uh, it's a very technical field. However, my background is not as technical as it could be. I was an international studies major and a Chinese minor. Um, but I do think, oftentimes, it's good because I can bring a different perspective and I'm trying to step out a little bit further out of my comfort zone here and instead of just focusing on the policy piece which seems like the appropriate thing for me to do I'd like to learn a little more about the technical side and that's why I'm kind of trying to get involved with you Dr. Minnelli and Dr. Lan as well. Uh, and so one of the things that we try to do is offer up opportunities to uh, have a hands-on education with spaceflight hardware and it's, it sounds like we're working on that right now yeah, with uh, potential thesis topics for you. We have some colleagues in New Zealand who are developing a communications payload that would slide into a, a newer satellite but looks very similar to this. It slides in, it connects up, um, but all of those uh, subsystems require interfaces. And so they're developing their payload in New Zealand currently, and we have to figure out how to plug it into, this, uh, into the satellite here. So that's a highly technical challenge it is. That, um, that you may not have had experience with. Uh, are you worried? Uh, I am nervous and even trying to figure out how to do, how to choose an advisor and a thesis topic during the current COVID times is definitely a challenge. Uh, it's not like we're in class, we're not meeting you. I never met you until we were introduced to potentially talk about the thesis topic. Um, so it's, it's definitely been interesting for our whole cohort. Uh, I think it's nice to have each other. We're all kind of in the same boat, trying to find out what to do. We all communicate and say, hey, this person has a cool project going on. Maybe you should go talk to Dr. Minnelli. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. I know we're allowed to come to lab now, and I'm actually you know, trying to set up as much time as I can with you to learn as much as I can. Um, I'm excited more than nervous, I would say. So this is a great um, example of the, of the value of applied hands-on learning because this is so important. So you can just do just so much on distance learning, but the applied hands-on is really important. And I think that this kind of a conversation 
uh, with the faculty and with the student is, is, is an example of the importance and the treasure of that hands-on learning. I think you have another place you want us to go. Absolutely. So where we're standing currently uh, is a newly refurbished uh, communications lab, radio frequency communications lab is what we're calling it. And what we want to do is expose our students to the communication systems that are used in real flight operations. And so around here on these benches, we have various, uh, not only oscilloscopes and power supplies, but we also have some very expensive satellite uh, communications radios. They're all hooked up to a series of antennas that are uh, topside uh, to, our, uh, to our antennas. We have parabolic dishes, we have Yagi antennas, uh, various frequency ranges. And so, uh, th so this lab is brand new. As we were getting ready to open it, uh, uh, COVID uh, disruptions happened, and so we haven't had any students come in here yet. We very much look forward to having them here. When they come here, some of the first labs that they're going to be doing is to be using these uh, new radios that our sponsors want us to uh, evaluate and uh, connect them up to the antennas here and actually test them against real satellites. There's obviously risk that we have to mitigate because we don't want to do anything adverse to the satellites on orbit, so we expose the students to that process as well. But we also want them to know, uh, to not just view their communication system as a black box. It's quite complicated, and we want them to actually understand what goes on under the hood, because more than likely, their next assignment is going to have something to do with space, and if it's space, it's going to have communications in it, and we want them to be proficient in that subject. Well, that's great. So let's, uh, let's head up topside, okay? So Dr. Minnelli, we're here at the topside and on the roof of Spanagle Hall. What do we have here for part of your lab? Well, uh, we were able to build a series of antennas here on the roof. We have a three-meter parabolic dish enclosed in a radome uh, that we're standing next to. We also have a series of Yagi antennas that are uh, lower cost, uh, UHF uh, frequency uh, antennas. This one operates in what's called the S-band. So this is actually very similar to what uh, Wi-Fi might use. And we have satellites that fly over here uh, every day. This antenna is uh, autonomously tracking those satellites and relaying commands to those satellites from operation centers that are actually in other parts of the country. This antenna is one of nine that we have around the United States that over the last several years we've built constituting a network called Mobile CubeSat Command and Control, or MC3 for short. And that's been uh, my, my primary research topic has been fielding that network, expanding it, uh, and then operating the satellites that end up relying on it for, for their mission operations. So do you, do all the nine integrate? Do they have a, uh, a place where they come to to understand what each one's doing or are they independent? A lot of the missions are completely independent and so it's on us to provide the common infrastructure between all these different ground stations so that the satellite who, uh, before it flies in orbit, will have never actually communicated with that ground station that's, um, that it happens to be passing over. So it's on us to make sure that the, all the software is uh, standardized, the radio frequency component, the spectrum allocations, as well as the hardware is all compatible with these satellites uh, as they're being developed. So about standards, so you are you licensed? Do you be one of nine? How do you uh, uh, approach the standardization issue? So um, there are a number of standards. There are uh, software standards, there are mechanical hardware standards, as well as uh, spectrum standards. So I'll just, there's a lot of uh, behind each one of those, yes. so I'll just cover the spectrum standards as, as an example. 
to license a satellite uh, to operate in a certain um, uh, spectrum regime actually takes years. It's very difficult. But when you're spending a billion dollars on a large asset that takes 10 years to build, what's a few years for spectrum allocation? In small satellites, that development time frame is on the matter of months, perhaps maybe just a couple of years. So we can't afford the bureaucracy of, of that spectrum deconfliction to take a long time. So our group has actually been working with some other um, groups around the DOD, and we've been allocating spectrum that's dedicated to U.S. government small satellites. By doing that, it's reduced the uh, spectrum allocation time from years to months. And that now enables more and more groups to be able to develop rapidly, to launch and to learn quickly, uh, rather than waiting on the bureaucracy to catch up. So now we're uh, moving as quickly as the technology lets us move, as opposed to uh, just the policy piece of it. There's a lot of other things here on the rooftops. Is there anything else you want to talk about that's on this rooftop? Well, uh, on this rooftop, uh, we have actually an open space here where we intend to build, hopefully, another antenna. And we're just in the planning process for this now. So I mentioned some antennas on the roof here that use UHF, which is uh, ultra high frequency, S-band, which is uh, two gigahertz. Uh, and what we hope to expand to now is X-band, which is about eight gigahertz, and even optical communications. What those frequencies and those, what those wavelengths give us is the ability to pump more data over air from space down to the ground. In the last decade or two that small satellites have, have proven themselves, people have found more and more ways of packing in technological capability. So higher end processors, more software, sensors that generate more data. So if we're communicating from space through a soda straw, that's not very appealing. So by working in these other frequencies, the higher frequency radio, so the X-band, and even optical communications with lasers, uh, we can ultimately have more ambitious plans uh, for these small satellites. And so we demo them here, we demo the technology here, we develop it and demo it, and then as it matures, we can then pass it out to some of the other locations where we've built these other ground stations. So there are a couple of things here as, as we close up this interview is one is that you talked about the fact that you first learned about NPS by being mentored and tutored by NPS students when you were a young, a young guy. That's about leadership in its own way. But as you go around and you're talking to our students, if they were to ask you, Dr. Manelli, what is your view of leadership? What would be your answer to them? Well, uh, that's a, it's a very difficult question, a lot of facets to that. Um, I would say my answer, uh, I'll frame it in the terms of my experience here at NPS. So by being a student here, I had to take all the coursework that all the military students take and I had to work with them. That required a lot of listening and learning. Uh, and as I transitioned from being a student to now actually being a colleague of these distinguished professors, very impressive people, uh, I now have to learn how to lead. And my position here at NPS has offered me the opportunity to do all three of those. So now, as a mentor myself, so I do get mentored a lot still, and I've grown substantially uh, in that experience, but now I also have an opportunity to mentor these students. Uh, and so that particularly comes from uh, the space world and some of my experiences that I gain here in the lab. But I also, it turns out, learn a lot from the students. They have all gone on. Uh, they've had some very impressive tours uh, before their time here at NPS, 
incredible diversity uh, and lots of experiences that I learn a lot from that they bring into the classroom. And then as they graduate and move on, a lot of times they reach back with some very cool new capabilities, but because they know about us and they know what we do, uh, I get a chance to also then learn from them again. So it's definitely a little bit of uh, both uh, leading and learning all in the same. Well, I'm not quite sure if you already had that in your mind, but I'm very pleased that you're talking about listening, learning, and leading. And I want to thank you for this interview and this time. It is spectacular work. It's fantastic. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing to influence our students now and in the future and all that you're doing to help this nation and the globe in understanding space. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, ma'am. It's a pleasure.